had a dream as a young boy, like all these Hall of Famers up here, to be a professional athlete. I was blessed with a gift, and I thank the Lord above for the wonderful, wonderful opportunity to have played this great game of baseball. I played all the sports as a young boy, but it was always baseball that I loved the most. I collected baseball cards as a hobby and one day dreamed of what it would be like to have my picture on one of those cards.
from Sinai, a hairdresser from Patterson Park, and a firefighter from Glendon. There's a fourth grader from Friendship Academy, and a lacrosse star for Boys Latin, a Catholic priest, and an Orthodox rabbi, a grandma from Dundalk, and a drummer from Hamilton. What's inside a can of Old Bay? You are Old Bay. For 75 years, it's been the can that connects us. Faces Gary Carter, first pitch, straightaway center field, Winfield going back. landed right on the top of the fence and then bounced out. Carter, two first pitch home runs as it just clears the fence. Let me turn it out, yo. Nate, take the snake. 
go to 71. Dates, you know what time it is, I'm packing the guns. Your experience, I've been a witness to glory. And that's why I collect ball players and their stories. You heard? So. Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kagalaki, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pop, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, you see, my priest? What's Gucci? It's now official. At the day of the spots release, we are two days over the winter baseball solstice, meaning we are two days past the exact middle of the last out of the world series, in which Josh Moore strikes out Keto Marte to the very first pitch of spring training. So, happy baseball solstice to all of you out there. The only part of the baseball offseason I like is really this time of year. The NFL is gearing up for the playoffs. Playoffs? Playoffs? You got the Super Bowl. Then I like to lock down and quarantine with raw meat, cigarettes, and moonshine. Watch the NCAA basketball tournament. WrestleMania, and then opening day. Hello, everybody. It's your boy, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I got your hookup. Holler if you hear me. Welcome to the dojo, and this is Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players. And their stories. This is show 114, week 9 of the 2023 offseason. And this is the BKP Hot Stove Report. And boy, oh boy. So, all offseason, I've been saying a bomb at the pace of the free agent signings, taking into consideration that Shohei and Yamamoto will be joining their suitors, listing the pitches from the major league clubs. And then you had the holiday season, so I didn't expect a lot of business to go down that week between Christmas and New Year. I did expect business to pick up this week. And to be fair, there have been some savvy moves since week one when Nola re-upped for, for Filthy, but we haven't seen big names moves besides Show Yo and Juan Soto and Aaron Nola. But the big names... The Bellagers, the Blake Snells, Gumby Montgomery, uh, Gumby Montgomery, Josh Hader. All of them Scott Boris clients, by the way. I still remain on on board. Now, now Japanese import Southpaw Shota Imanaga is due to watch his uh, 45-day posting window shut out on January 11th. So I expect him to be signed very soon. And I thought the Red Sox might be in on him hard. And I've been disappointed thus far in what Boston has done this offseason. But I'll hit on that in a few. So, when things are flying off the free agent shelf, like some people would hope, we can always think the baseball guys were giving us Mariners GM Jerry Depoto to swing a deal or two or five. As he had a busy week. I mean, that dude has a busy week a lot, right? <laughs> what, 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 what? Listen to this, folks. 
Jerry Depota took over the Mariners in 2016, and during that time, he has made at least 160 trades by my count. Now, I started losing count around 150. Some have worked, some haven't. But if he makes a mistake, he usually pretty good at cleaning up his mess with the next trade. I know he drives some M's fans crazy and leaves a few of them scratching their heads with some of his moves. But here's the fact. Since he took over the helm in Seattle, he has a 308 and 266 win-loss record, which is eight best in the majors during that span. And it's no secret, the Mariners are balling on a budget this year. So... Depoto made some moves that netted him three players to his roster without spending a dollar. His first deal was with the Giants when he sends 2021 AL Cy Young Award winner Robbie Ray to the city by the Bay for relief pitcher Anthony DiScopaldi and outfielder Mitch Hanniger. And really, what is a cash-neutral salary dump for both teams? The Giants... Also put a suitcase of about $6 million in cash at a drop spot in Walla Walla for the Mariners to pick up at their convenience. And before I get into the trade, from the San Francisco perspective, let's take a look at where Jerry's mind is at. And I told you guys, I love trades more than watching teams buy high-priced fish from the market. To get a glimpse into strategy and what baseball minds believe are foundation pieces and what they believe are expendable ships. Now, the Mariners' narrative this winter has been this team has a little money to play with, around $13 million before this trade, but the team needs some to cut some salary to remain physically flexible, and they are looking to bring down those strikeout totals in their lineup bring in OVP type guys and ball to back contact dudes. So, with that being said, I'm sure Jay read the writing on the wall and had an anticipation and guesstimate where he believed uh, last uh, where he believed that last year's left fielder Teoscar Hernandez would, dem- uh, would demand on the, com- on the market, which I'm getting to Teoscar. And honestly, they were the same zip code and value. And Teoscar is the complete opposite type of player he is looking for in next year's lineup. Teoscar strikes out a ton, and he rarely walks, and it's going to cost more than your budget. So, they take Hanniger, who is a fan favorite in Seattle. He's just one of those guys like James Paxton, who the fans adore there. And his problem is he can't stay healthy. There's a health risk there for sure, but if he can stay healthy, he has proven that he can thrive on that stage before those fans, and he's proven that he can hit with power there. Again, that's a big if. And in Discovery, they get a guy who can spot start st- statistically. He had a mediocre, unpredictable season the past two years, but I don't see him in the Ebbs rotation, and he can be a valuable vet presence in that bullet. So, on its own, it really doesn't look like much. But as is the case when it comes to Jerry Depoto, sometimes it's not about one trade. Sometimes that one trade with Jerry springs the dominoes for a path to where he's going exactly. And I know this is kind of the kind of trade where you say, ho-hum, big deal, salary dump. But 
Within a few hours, he rips off another deal, this time with the Rays when he sets infielder Jose Caballeros to Tampa for outfielder Luke Rayleigh. And Caballero, they gave up a feisty middle infielder who is slowly descending on the M's depth charts at that position. Really, he's kind of like your typical Raiders player. They'll continue to develop him. He's a solid ball player. They'll probably make him better. And he'll play more now that it looks like Wander Franco may be persona non grata in the baseball universe. But I love Luke Rail. Now, he was a tail of two halves in his first big league season last year. He was a uh, full season, I should say. He was an absolute monster the first half of the year, and he was a huge contributor to the Rays' early jump out of the game. And between him and newly acquired Mitch Garver, Garvey, uh, I'm sorry, D.H. Mitch Garver, you have some solid bump in the middle of the lineup. He has pull power for a left-handed stick, which is imperative at T-Mobile Park. And he's also fast. He doesn't look like he should be fast at 6'4", 234 pounds, but he is. And he's a smart base runner, 14 stolen bases, only three times caught. He can play all three outfield positions, spell tie France at first. He had the ninth best WRC plus for all left-handed hitters last year with a 126. So think about that. Even after a flawed second half, he was a top 10 left-handed hitter in baseball last year. So, look, if you're just going by the deal with San Francisco early in the day and you were barking at the moon as a Mariners man, you can relax. Jerry ended the day with a better outfield than the one that he had starting last year. I say that because Hernandez is a butcher out in left field. You already know Mitch Hanniger is not going to play every day. If you get 100 games out of him... That ain't bad. You start out the year with Julio, Luke, Dom Canzone, and you don't have Teoscar butchering it up out there anymore. You're much better defensively, for sure. And I like Braley's offensive upside over Teoscar's recent history. So, the Mariners snatch up three players who can help them this year for a player who wasn't going to help them until the second half. And a middle infielder drifting down that depth chart. It costs them nothing against the payroll. In fact, you come away with some cash here. The Giants left in the bushes for you. And you still have some flexibility to go out and get a Robert Stevenson on the back end of your bully or a Willie Adamas to play third. And how about you create a package revolving around trading Ty Rance to Minnesota for Rax, uh, right fielder Max Kepler and you move really to first. Like, you know, something like that. There's some flexibility now. Uh, these are smart trades by Jerry. They leave him with options, even though they are budgeting. I don't think the Mariners are done. Now, the Giants have a whole other perspective. And this is how we interpret the move from their position. Now, this move on its own, acquiring the 33-year-old Southpaw, Robbie Ray, it does not single signal a short-term solution for them competitively. And he is not just an arm. He's a badass when he's right. In 2021, the year of his Cy Young Award, he starts 32 games, pitches almost 200 innings pits, 13 at 7 with a 2.84 ERA, 248 strikeouts to lead the AL, 157 ERA plus, and a 1.04 whip. Ironically, 
Uh, he was with Toronto that uh, that 2021 year, the same year Kevin Gosman went off at San Francisco and resurrected his career. The Giants let Gosman walk. He signed a deal with the Jays. Did the Jays let their side young winner walk? And he signs with Seattle. And both dudes signed deals that are comparable to one another in length in the A and B. Uh, AAV. In retrospect, maybe by doing this, it is some sort of subconscious contrition and realization that they made a mistake by letting Gosman walk. Now, Ray's numbers, they did slide in 2022. He was done in his very first start in 2023 for the Mariners, going under the knife for TJ surgery. And going back to the Mariners team last year, they were so goddamn streaky when they were hot. Julio Rodriguez was carrying them, but when they went cold, they went ice. They were still the number one team in ERA last year, and I think I could make the argument that had Robbie Ray given them a whole year, the Mariners would have won the AL West last year, y'all. But anyway, back to San Francisco. This is probably the biggest trade club GM Farhan Zaidi has made in this capacity, and I feel like Farhan has a history of trading for players with an injury history, and I think Farhan may be on the hot seat, and rightfully so. Even though Ray won't be back until after the All-Star break, and once he brings his command back, which is usually the last thing to come together for pitchers after TJ, there will be a transition. He should pair real nice with staff ace Logan Webb, like, for real, that's legitimate. Top of the rotation, arms right there. And they should be real excited to watch October Day 2025. By the way, uh, Ray does own an option for the end of the 2024 season. I expect, and the club anticipates, he will accept that option coming off a down year and a season-plus miss because of surgery. Unless he throws like five new hitters when he returns. And then he's going to want to get paid. Realistically, though, that's not going to happen. You can move, move your chips and uh, the size of the in to the size of the pot. He'll be there opening day 2025 with a healthy offseason. And don't forget, Alex Cobb, who rebranded himself in the pitcher-friendly confines of Oracle Park, should be back in the second half as well. Now, they get rid of Hanniger because, well... You can't help the club when you're sitting in the top. They love his pop. He plays hard, but he's always injured. And with the addition of Korean KBO import Jung-ho Lee to the outfield, it kind of lets him out, lets him as the man out. I mean, theoretically, you could have done a Michael Conforto, Mitch Hanniger kind of platoon in left field, but that's real pricey, especially when I'm not sure either man should be a platoon player if they're healthy. You got Yaz. Matos, Flores, Hanniger had to go. It's just basic numbers. Now, 2025 looks amazing. Webb, Ray, Cobb, not too shabby. But I have concerns about competing this year and not letting their rival Dodgers bury them before you even get to the break. I'm truly hoping this isn't it for Saidi. Uh, the Giants need to use this. Dodgers energy to pivot and counter-program the way the Red Sox and Yankees used to do back in the day. The Giants and Snakes in my eyes are the only serious threat to L.A. uh, out of all the teams in the NL West. And I'm a believer that the Giants need more pitching. They absolutely need to score at least one of these southpaws available and Snell, Monty, or Iminaga. 
to me, it's imperative. They need to get one of those guys, and they need at least one more bat. And I think if you're buying fish, Matt Chapman is a sound option. I'm going to hold judgment on the Giants offseason because I'm thinking there has to be some bullets left in their gun. I cannot stress this enough. If they don't pull down one of those pitchers, then it's time to seriously evaluate Farhan and his resume. I think this is a good long-term sign if you get Ray healthy in your rotation for two and a half years. But the Giants still, they need to hulk up a little bit going into this year. The Mets signed right-handed pitcher Sean Manaya, which isn't the sexy name that some Mets fans are looking for, but it's a very good move by them in my opinion. And I know this is going to trigger some of the guys who want to see some gluttonous, frivolous bending by the deep-pocketed owner. But David Stearns has a plan. To make the franchise better from the bottom floor, minor leagues, all the way up to the top. And he's thinking long term, not 2024, Mets fans. Now, patience is a virtue, and some of y'all just ain't got it. It reminds me a lot when Andrew Friedman left Tampa Bay to handle the GM duties for the Dodgers. And I remember people saying, oh man, he's leaving Tampa for L.A., he's going to have an open paycheck, and the Dodgers are going to go crazy. But let's look back on that. That's not what happened. Friedman came in, concentrated on development and evaluations before really spending any money. Going after Freddie Freeman last year, he made some savvy moves, brought youngsters up, put him to the test. And that's where Stern is. He's done the credible thing by the Mets franchise. I understand them going in on Yamamoto, being that he's only 25 years old, and they have the finances to put that bill. So I get that on some level. But I'm much more conservative, fiscally. I wouldn't have gone there. I told you guys, there ain't a high-priced fish this year on the market that I would pay for market value. I'm out. But look, the Mets were in. Probably had interest in Shohei as well, but when they missed out on Yamamoto, the equation changed for them. I don't expect them to go in on Snell or Monty, maybe Imanaga. I can see and understand that. I think in Stern's mind, he'd rather overpay Manaya for two years instead of Snell or Gumby for five, six, and seven years in their 30s. Over his last 27 starts last year for the Giants, Manaya was pretty good. 3.44 ERA and 91 and two-thirds innings pitched. He developed a sweeper, which has become the narrative of, of his improvement throughout the year. And I think there's some truth to that as he was basically a fastball change-up guy. And while the sweeper did give his opponent something to ponder in the recesses of their brain, he really used it less and less as the season wore on down the stretch. The sweeper was a great addition, and he has the ability to throw for strikes, but his outpitch was still his fastball. And the fastball ticked up two miles per hour from its average years before that. I think the increase in velocity had just as much to do with his resurgence as much as that sweeper. I think the Mets have upgraded on their additions over what they have lost this year, except for maybe the addition of Joey Wendell and the subtraction of Adam Adovino. And now you have Kodai Senga at the top of the rotation, followed by Jose Catania, uh, Luis Severino, Manaya, and then, I don't know, I guess you'll let Tyler McGill, Adrian Hauser, Bodo, Lucchese battled out for that last spot. So... You really do have depth there. Do you have a true ace yet? 
maybe in second, but not really. But you have some serious mid-rotation depth and starting pitching. Pitching, and you also got young fruit on the vine down on the farm, and Christian Scott and Mike Vaslin. So let's be honest. You're not beating the Phillies or Braves in the standings this year, but you have a farm system getting better and better, deeper and deeper, and you still have enough talent to win 86 games or so, which should put you in the wild card mix. If they're not going to keep Alonzo, they should trade him sooner rather than later. Every day that he's on your roster, his value diminishes your returns. And Severino could be a savior or the poster boy for everything that is wrong with the Mets, winning and losing. They need to stop. They need him to stop tipping pitches, get back to what he does or well, what he used to do. And, of course, what would this offseason be without the Dodgers acquiring another player with deferred money? As they went out and signed former Mariners outfielder Teoscar Hernandez. And at this point, the Dodgers really should go all in like Doyle Brunson and just sign Josh Hader and Blake Snell on deferred contracts uh, as they are the rage in SoCal these days. But everyone needs to calm down with this tale of doom and gloom for the rest of baseball. Don't get me wrong. Hernandez is a solid ball player. He's an upgrade for them, but he's not a game changer. He, he's horrible defensively, strikes out a lot, never walks, which is very on Dodgers like, by the way. And now, well, he does have some pop, and they, they got him for $23 million on the year, which, again, they deferred payments on that for like 10 years, I believe. Now, even though he has his flaws, it may not matter much because we know he won't be batting one or two or three. Uh, but you can pencil his left hand to stick in from the four hole down to about seven if you have Jay Hay and Lux at the bottom. So the strikeouts and OVP, it won't matter as much in that spot as long as he is dropping dong and driving in rips. And call me crazy, but everyone is freaking out over what the Dodgers are doing. Number one. I think it's great. Finally, as a person who resides in a division that features the Yankees and the Red Sox, where they literally print Confederate money in the basements of their stadiums, the National League now really gets a taste of what I've dealt with almost all my baseball life. I'm dying to see what the Dodgers' next move is. Be the greedy little pigs you are and buy them all. <laughs> it's crazy. But check it out, breaks. They're not unbeatable. I hope my team faces them in the World Series. I'm not scared one bit. And honestly, ask yourself, are they better than the Braves yet right now? Be honest in your analysis. Are they? Who has more length in their lineup? One team has Hayward and Lux at the bottom. The other has Kelnick and RC at the bottom. The Braves led the NL in average home runs, OPS plus, and slugging percentage. I don't think Teoscar puts that lineup over the top. Well, Snake, you got Mookie, Unicorn, and Free at the top. True. Atlanta has Acuna, Albies, and Riley at the top of theirs. That's pretty comparable. Is Muncy better than Olsen? Hell no. Is the Dodger rotation better than Atlanta with Bueller on a hard innings count? Yamamoto transitioning from a six-man rotation to facing the greatest hitters on the planet at the highest level? With youngsters Miller and Sheehan coming versus Strider, Freed, Sale, Morton, Elder. I'm going to say no, folks. For me, it's a no. Atlanta has a better bully. Let's not go there. It's not even worth the breakdown. My point is, the Dodgers are not a given. 
There are still plenty of moves that can be made that will be cheaper and just as productive as what they have done. And I'm not even sure they are better than the Braves. I'm being honest. Maybe they are, but it's not a slam dunk. As much money as they have spent, they still have flaws. They're not perfect. And before we get to this week's topic, I was thinking all day, what would happen... Uh, if the Dodgers sell that team in the next decade or two with all that deferred money, the next owner is going to incur a shit ton of debt. I think about that. The next owner. How's that going to work? All right. Well, that's what down in the hot stove this week. I'll be here every week of the all season to give you guys the skinny on all the latest signings and trades. Until we get to opening day 2024. So, with our week 9 hot stove report in the books with a backwards K next to it, I look out onto the ball fields to the west of us here at Terrapin Station. I see the pitcher has finished his warm-up tosses. The catcher is thrown down to second baseman, covering that bag. The umpire is called play ball, and the infield is throwing that pill around. So, with that in mind, that's my cue. To load up the remaining stragglers here. Let's clear this platform and load up our BKP time travel to chill as I call all aboard. As this week, I will be setting our time and destination for April 8th, 1952, Culver City, California, where our story begins this week as I am honored to bring you the journey of one of the all-time great catchers, leaders, and overall human beings, Gary the Kid Carter. So, hurry, hurry, step right up, get in where you fit in, take your shoes, take them off, open your kimonos, get yourself real comfortable, we don't judge here, as we make our way through the baseball universe, spending space and time, to reach our time and destination, I've been anxious to do this pod. Frankly, it's one of those shows I circle when I set out the schedule of the year. And I was a huge Gary Carter fan as a kid in the 70s and teenager of the 80s. He had such a grip on my baseball conscience at an impressionable baseball age. I've always had a soft spot for catchers. They usually had the highest baseball acumen on the team. They're usually the toughest dude on the team. And you can't win it all without a really good one. That's a fact. The Expos were my favorite NL team as a kid. And the truth is, I really got to see them play growing up in Baltimore. This is before the internet, MLB apps, all-day sports radio programming. Hell, we didn't even have ESPN back then. We had NBC Game of the Week on Saturdays after the Baseball Bunch TV show. We had an all-star game. And we had baseball cards and newspaper box scores. That's it. And the Expos were one of those quirky teams that manifested itself into my imagination. My absolute favorite baseball player as a kid was Ken Singleton, whom we got from the Montreal Expos. It seems light years away from where I was as a kid. And I was fascinated with anywhere other than where I lived. The the further away, the better. Montreal, Canada, that was like the moon for me. Another planet. 
Nowadays, we hold the world literally in the palm of our hands. But back then, we had to use imagination. And you had this 1970s vision of what a state-of-the-art AstroTurf stadium was going to look like in baseball's future. I know, I know. The roof never fucking worked. And let's just say, Lestadio Olympique didn't age well at all. But as a kid, it sparked my imagination. Hey, Ma, look at those crazy numbers on the outfield wall. What's with this 100M stuff? They use the metric system? What a bunch of weirdos. Who's, who the hell uses the metric system anyway? Huh? Everybody. Except the United States, Liberia. And what'd you call that country? Myanmar? What the hell is a Myanmar? They had a crazy mascot to this day. I have no idea what exactly he was. I could hear polka music and accordion music over the loudspeaker. And hey, Ma, what's that language they're speaking over the PA? French? They speak French? Where the hell is Canada anyway? I was precocious. I had a lot of questions. The spos were different. Cool-ass hats, powder blue homes, bleach white, red, and blue roads. They got this guy named Gary Carter. When I looked at my baseball card, he just looked like a baseball player with his curly-haired mullet blowing under his iconic exposed lid. That awesome smile. And when I put the card over, wow, this guy's a catcher, and he hits in the middle of a really good lineup. And every year, I saw him in the All-Star game against us, and he absolutely destroyed American League pitchers. Like, two-time AL, uh, NL All-Star MVP destroys him. And... I did the Death of the Expo shows in the archives. If you haven't heard that show, you might want to check that out on whatever platform you're using now to listen to this. It's the fifth most listened to show in the archives. And in that show, I told you the story of how Gary Carter got his name. And there's an actual story behind it. People think he just showed up at spring training, and because of all his passion and exuberance, they called him the kid. Which, again, it isn't necessarily wrong, but it runs a little deeper than that, as his nickname, the kid, was a status of the big league club before he even stepped foot in the Expos clubhouse. So, the Expos catcher, before Gary Carter took over the position, was uh, Barry Foote. He was drafted by the Expos with the third overall pick in the 1970s amateur baseball draft. He's highly talented, and he has a solid beginning to his career. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a good beginning. It's so good. In fact, he's able to stave off Carter from taking his position from him, banishing Carter to right field while he produces. Now, eventually, he hurts his knee, and Carter takes over. But, look, we'll get there. Anyway. The Expos had a pitcher on the team named Dan Carithers, who used to walk across the Olympic Stadium carpet during drills and practice and scream across the facility, Hey! Hey, funny! Hey, funny! I saw the kid last night, man. He's coming for you, brother. Did you hear? The kid went three for four. Two home runs, five RBIs last night. Hey, funny! That kid is coming, man. Funny! Kids batting like 307 now. Hey, buddy! 
And all the while, his teammates are laughing their asses off as Carruthers would tease him incessantly. And by the time Carter makes his first spring training invite, his teammates were like, Ah, so you're the king, huh? And the name appropriately appropriately stuck throughout his career. And quite frankly, as a young seamhead, it, it befuddled me that Carter would have to wait six years for his Hall of Fame inclusion. He was arguably the best catcher of his generation, picking up the mantle when the standard Johnny Benson's career, catching career, ended around 1980. And for me... I have Carter somewhere around the fifth through seventh best catcher in the modern era. And the modern era being everything after 1947 when Jackie breaks the color line. So, first and foremost, he was a defensive stalwart at the catcher position. He had fantastic footwork, a rocket launcher of an arm. He knew every batter in the National League by his second year. He knew today's starting pitcher for his team and what his strengths and weaknesses were in relation to the batters he would be facing today. And he had a plan. He approached every batter like it was do or die, game seven, ninth inning of the World Series. And defensively, he was the puppet master pulling all the strings. Former Mets pitcher Ron Darling wistfully likes to tell a story about how one of the first games that he pitches to Carter, he keeps shaking Gary R. He keeps shaking Gary off. And he can tell by Carter's gaze to the mask and his body language, he's getting a little annoyed by Darling continuously shaking him off. You got two type A personalities not quite meshing their egos their very first few times working together. Carter calls for a fastball versus Dale Murphy. Darling shrugs him off and chooses a curveball instead. It hangs. And Murphy bangs a blast into the left field bullpen beyond the outfield wall. Gary takes off his mask as he he asks the umpire for a new ball. And he takes the ball and he throws it as hard as he can back at Darling and glares at him. And Ron catches the ball and glares back. And in the back of his mind, he knew he should have caught fastball there in retrospect. But I don't need our new catcher showing me up, making me feel worse about this result. The relationship between the two began icy, but Darling came to understand that Carter wasn't showing him up. This is who he was. In Carter's mind, the only way he could approach the game was to play every game like it was Game 7, and if he was going to approach every game that way, he expected everyone around him on his team to approach the game that way as well. Especially his pitching staff. In Lehman's turn, Gary Carter wasn't there to fuck around. And when the umpire called play ball, he was a professional. That meant something to the competitive competitive backstop. You know, he was paid to win. So, he's top shelf liquor behind the dish. An absolute stud. And boy, oh boy, can he hit. He was a legitimate middle-of-the-order uh, middle power stick. He hit 298, hit 298 home runs as a catcher. It's the sixth most at his position. And he is remembered for his broad grin, iconic fist pumps after collisions at the plate, the exuberant high fives he dealt out at home plate after scoring a big run that often left teammates feel like he may have broken a bone in their palm. Gary's best years came in Montreal during the late 70s and into the early 80s, but 
He was still in his late prime when he joined the Mets in 1985. He was the final piece of a puzzle that pushed a promising young club to become world champions in 1986 on a team that had a wild clubhouse as, you know, a bunch of kids from different backgrounds. They played hard. Uh, and a lot of them played hard in, in the New York City nightlife on the ostentatious 1980s. Gary Carter was the moral compass of the hard-living squad. And here we are, folks, pulling up to April 8, 1954, Culver City, California, where the second of two boys, Gary Edmund Carter, has been born to Jim and Charlotte Carter. Now, his father, Jim, was a mechanically-minded man from Kentucky who moved to Cali after World War II to work technical jobs in Hollywood. When Gary was born, he was working as an aviation parts inspector for Hughes Aircraft Company in the aerospace industry. His mother, Charlotte Keller Carter, was born in Chicago in 1929. Her parents uh, were German immigrants who came to the States in the 1920s. And Gary always credited his mother for his athletic gifts as she was a champion swimmer growing up. Ironically, Gary would always laugh when he uh, when he would admit that he was a poor swimmer himself. And Gary's older brother, Gordon, was quite the baller himself as he was drafted in the second round of the 1968 amateur baseball draft by the Angels and by the San Francisco Giants in 1971. He would go on to play two years on the Giants' farm. Gary started playing baseball around six years old but he was also quite the standout football player as well. In 1961, the NFL sponsored their very first punt, pass, kick contest at the L.A. Coliseum. Seven-year-old Gary becomes the national champion of his age group. He was a finals again two years later, but lost in a sub-zero temperatures in Chicago. And when Carter is 12 years old, his mother, at the age of 37, dies of leukemia. The crushing loss had a profound effect on the rest of his life and would become the root later in life for his charitable work, raising money for leukemia research. It was now Jim Carter's responsibility to take over the role of both parents, making unwavering sacrifices for Gary and Gordy. In addition to his long hours at McDonnell Douglas Another aerospace defense firm, he coached young Gary at various levels of youth baseball and supported both of his boys in all their sports endeavors. And Gary followed his idol Gordy to Sunny Hills High School in Fullerton, California, where he was a three-sport star, becoming captain of the football, baseball, and basketball teams. He was also a scholastic leader, becoming a member of the National Honor Society. In football, he was a high school American quarterback, received nearly 100 scholarship offers. He would sign a letter of intent to attend and play his uh, for UCLA in his junior year. Interestingly enough, had he played for the Bruins, he would have had to compete with Mark Harmon, who went on to become a well-known actor in the 1980s. But Gary suffered toward knee ligaments in practice his senior year. And he had to sit out the rest of the season. The doctors warned him that one more bad hit 
could be the end of his athletic career. So, with that swirling around in his thoughts, he hung up the pads for good and committed his energy into baseball. The Expos had their eye on the multi-sports high school star and selected him in the third round of the 1972 amateur baseball draft. And for the most part, in his high school career, he played shortstop. He also played a little third, he pitched. And he had only caught six games as a catcher in his high school career. But Expo scout Bob Zook, special assignment scout Bobby Maddock, and farm director, director Mel Didier looked at the rugged teenager who was now 6'2", 205 pounds, which is 187.98 centimeters and 93 kilograms in metric terms. So they look at this big kid, and the three of them behind the scenes are wondering amongst themselves if the catcher position will be the road less traveled to the majors for this boy. And although Gary was raw and rough around the margins, dotting the tools of ignorance, his rise to the majors was rapid. He played in rookie ball, rookie league, Class A in 1972. He made the leap to Double A in 1973. By the end of the 73 season, he makes the jump to Triple A. In 1974, he becomes a top AAA starting all-star catcher. And it's around this time that pitcher Dan Carruthers starts teasing catcher Barry Foote about his due spot as a starting catcher on the major league level. Soon after his all-star start, he was promoted to Montreal. And he would never return to the minors except for a brief rehab stint in 1989. In 1973... The nickname may have been started by Carruthers busting Footy's balloons over the arrival of Carter, but soon teammates like Ken Singleton and Mike Jorgensen began calling him Kid all the time. And that's because of his fire and competitive spirit. He shows up to Kid. He wants to win every single spring. He wants to put fastballs, every single one of them over the fence. Most of the teammates love his enthusiasm, but... There were some in the clubhouse, mostly guys who took themselves way too fucking serious or were in it just for the paycheck and the bronze. They nicknamed him Gary Camera Carter. Some noticed his willingness to do interviews and they named him Lights and Teeth. This was a profile he carried with him to the Mets as well, usually some surly ass big leaguer who forgot they play a kid's game for a great living but complain that Gary plays to the camera when the red light goes on. Not just in interviews, but on the field as well with his rah-rah bullshit. Some said it was fake, but here's the thing. Every day I saw that guy play, whether it was in the Expos or Mets gear. He played at 110 miles per hour. He was always running hot. So, I don't know if it was fake, but every time is a lot. And I do mean every fucking time. So, if a guy does it every time, is it really fake? And if it is fake, well, I'll take that fake energy from, uh, every day from my teammate, especially if he plays the catcher position. But this was the mindset, and behind the curtain energy of the behind, you know, the back sniping of the Montreal Expos, and the talented but flawed Mets clubhouse that would eventually plode in on itself with all the ego and off-field addicts that famously went on with that team. From where I stand, there was nothing phony about Carter. His cheery, chatty exterior, it truly reflected what was in his heart, 
up until his untimely young death, he delighted in relationships with people from all walks of life. His first roommate was veteran catcher John Bacabella, whom the Expos picked up in a deal for Carithers, ironically, towards the end of the March 1974 year. Bach, as the boys called him, had a profound effect on the kid, and his influence was even stronger. The veteran catcher was a man of deep religious faith who attended Mass daily and often led Sunday services for the Expos. Now Carter, who lost his faith after his mother died, found it again from his roommate-slash-mentor here. Gary's daughter recalled in 2013 that John Bacabella led my father back to Christ and he accepted Jesus in his heart. Gary Carter signed many autographs throughout his career. Almost all of them say, God bless, before his signature. Playing winter ball in Puerto Rico. It also had a positive influence on, on the kid playing career. He played for the Creoles during the 1973-74 season. The kid actually started that winter in the instructional league, but a month into the Puerto Rican season, Cogloss needed a backup catcher. Expo's GM Jim Fanny recommended the 19-year-old kid to become the youngest member of the team. He got his chance to play full-time when starting catcher Jim Asayan was injured. As was true everywhere Gary went, the fans loved him for his enthusiasm and his desire to win. In the Caribbean series, he drops dong on Pedro Barbone's lips and was named the series' all-star catcher. In September 1974, the Expos promote him to the show. He made his MLB debut on September 16th at Old Jerry Park in Montreal. On September 28th, he hits his first blast of his Hall of Fame career at Jerry Park off a of fellow Hall of Famer Steve Carlton and a precursor of things to come. Throughout his career, Carter molested Lefty, bashing him to a 407 BA and 27 at-bats. Carter initially wore number 57 in that brief appearance. The following season, he was given the no- number 8 which is so distinctly remembered. In 2008, Carter wrote that number eight was his fate and destiny. I was born on April 8th. I got married on February 8th. We moved into our first home in November 8th. And look at all the number eights that played in this game that I had uh, that I had to look up to. Call Yastrzemski, Willie Stargell, Joe Morgan, Yogi Berra, Bill Dickey, Cal Ripken Jr. When I was assigned to number eight, it just felt like me. And Carter played with Cogwas again in the winter of 1974-1975. He batted 265 with five home runs and 32 RBIs. Though the Creoles wanted him to play behind the disc, Jim Fanning sought, uh, thought He'd like to see him get action at third base and right field, which was curious considering the Spos had another prize pos- prospect, Larry Parrish, projected to eventually man the hot corner. Once again, Creoles made it to the Caribbean Series, and once again, they came away with a berth uh, in that Caribbean Series. This time, losing in seven games to Bayamon Vancaros. And soon after the loss... He marries his high school sweetheart, Sandy Lamb. And at the time, Sandy was training to be a flight attendant. The couple sent, they spent their honeymoon and Expo's training camp in Daytona Beach. And the couple would have three children, Christy, Kimmy, and DJ. All the hard work and beautiful production 
gathered up by the kid, the past two winners in Puerto Rico begins to pay off as it caught the eye of the two most influential people in his life at the time, GM Jim Fanning and team manager Gene Mock. And Mock told the reporters before the season that Gary was highly intelligent, gifted for such a young prospect who had made the proper adjustments on every level he had played on. I've seen guys who can hit better and run better, but I've never seen a better package. That's what she said. I've never seen a guy who loves to play more. Carter would go on to finish second in NL Rookie of the Year voting in 1975 behind Giants pitcher John Montefusco. He was also named to his first of 11 All-Star teams. That year, however, he started 80 games in right field and only 56 behind the dish. He and Barry Foote continued to share the catching duties in 1976 as well, even though the kid would break his thumb, missing most of June and July when he collided with outfielder Pepe Mongual going after a fly ball. And statistically, it was his worst season ever as an expo. Montreal had a rising young star to play right field coming through the ranks, Ellis Valentine, who had pop in his lumber and a cannon for an arm. And Carter would seize the catcher position from Barry Foote in 1977, just as Dan Carruthers had been predicted four years before. From 1977 to 1984, the kid would start in 89% of the Expos games played during that span at catcher. And he would boast in an 823 OBP. He won three gold gloves concurrently from 1980 to 1982. And he was runner-up to Michael Jack Schmidt for the NL MVP in 1980. In the batter's box... Carter became an imposing piece of the Expos lineup. For his era, era, Carter had one of the burlier upper bodies, and he had a chopping horizontal stroke, kind of like a lumberjack attacking a tree. As a catcher, Kidd cited his hard work and natural development with experience for the reason for his defensive success, especially once he earned full-time status behind the plate. He was more than just a big bat. From 1974 to 1976, he threw out 49 of 99 base runners, 49% of would-be stealers. The ratio would remain at 40% or over from 1977 to 1984. No runner instilled fear in him. Many catchers will call for fastballs to protect their ego and stats against thievery. But Carter had the footwork and arm strength to throw out runners after catching a breaking ball or even a changeup. By the late 70s, the Expos are a consistent baseball machine. Thanks to the farm and the young fruit coming off of that vine, guys like Carter, Paris, Valentine, Andre Dawson, Steve Rogers leading the way for this band of homegrown warriors. In 1981, they made the postseason for the first and only time in franchise history. Carter was 8 for 19 with two dongs as the Spos dispatched Philly in the NLDS. He then went 7 for 16 in the NLCS versus the Dodgers. Despite losing the series on the dreaded Blue Monday that still lives in baseball infamy in Montreal, when Dodgers up outfielder Rick Monday hit the eventual series and game-clinching home run and the top of the ninth of the deciding game. In 1982, they fell to second place, even though Carter had an elite campaign. Carter was progressing into more than just a power threat. 
with a bat in his hand. He worked hard to cut down on his home run swing strikeouts. He disciplined himself to hit the ball the other way to move his talented teammates that he had around him. On defense, his arm and footwork was lauded by opponents and coaches alike. Besides a strong, accurate arm, he learned other valuable skills to excel, like framing pitches, blocking the plate, uh, fearlessly when, like, you know, Dave Parker is bull rushing him down the third base line. He learned how to call the game, position guys, and he was known for his nonstop commentary behind the plate that most level-headed, single-minded hitters considered a distraction. There was a psychological aspect of catching and the kid was tapped in. He still had his boyish enthusiasm and the cynics still doubted his sincerity. But he also had a temper. He once shattered Bill Buckner's bat when the two came to blows. Johnny Bench called the kid a fiery, forceful, aggressive player. In February of 1982, Carter had signed a seven-year deal with Montreal for $14 million plus incentives. At that time, it was up there with some of the richest contracts in all of American team sports. $14 million in 1982. It has the purchasing power of around $46 million in the 2024 economy. The Expos could not make it back to the post. And owner Charlie Bronfman was disappointed because not only had he given Carter a deal beyond Montreal's means at the time, he was losing money hand over fist. And, you know, that was due to many of the things I talked about on that Death of the Expos show that's in the archives, if you want to check that out. And, of course, after signing that contract, Carter had fallen off with a stick while battling assorted injuries, but he did bounce back to his high level in 1984. But the Expos still finished fifth in the NL East. The club decided it was time to reload, get some value for their star. So that December, after lengthy talks, Montreal traded the catcher to the Mets for infielder Hubie Brooks, catcher Mike Fitzgerald, outfielder Herm Willingham, and pitcher Floyd Yeomans. Brooks gave Montreal some solid years at shortstop. Fitzgerald was a very good defender, but uh, stiff offensively, especially after breaking his finger in 1986. And Floyd Yeoman was talented, but he developed arm problems and a nasty drug habit. And I think I'm going to stick in the pin in the Gary Carter story right here. Let me get some fluids. Plot our course for Acts 2 and 3 of the kid's story. Rip a few tubes. Dole out some treats for my boy Gunner. BRB Freaks. Please support the class grassroots sponsors that support your grassroots baseball pod. Lavaro's Hand Cleaner. No more smelly hands. Don't go anywhere, freaks. See you on the dark side of the moon. Can I sneak a call in here? Go ahead. Today is going to be green lighted here, and he's going to get a run on the board for the twin.
That's a heck of a call right there. Into the upper deck. That is a heck of a call. Two balls, two strikes to Bryce Harper. Suarez delivers. Swing and a drive. Left field. It's deep. It's going. Yes. And it is gone. Yes. yes. It is Bedlam at the bank as Bryce Harper has put the Phillies on top. The 0-1. And Alvarez belts it. Deep to right field. Yes, it's in by. Unbelievable. The Astros will walk off with. Jordan Alvarez will walk off three run over. And the Astros stun the Mariners in Gary one of the division series. We've had three homers tonight, all the right field or right or center field. Carbos, which is dead center. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays there, home run. We will have a seventh game in this 1975 World Series. Red Sox win it 7-6 to six in 12 innings.
impossible, the impossible has happened. Smith courts one in the right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run. And the Cardinals have won the game by the score of three to two. the pitch on the way, a swing and a belt, left field, way back, Blue Jays win it, the Blue Jays are World Series champions, as Joe Carter hits a three-run home run in the ninth inning, and the Blue Jays have repeated as World Series champions, touch them all, Joe, you'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. Here's the pitch by Downing, swinging, there's a drive into left center field, that ball is going to be... The quick final game of the series, Mike, who's yours? Well, I think clearly it's going to be Chuy Asasopo today. He's swung the bat well the last few times that he's got an opportunity to play. I expect him to hit his first big league home run today. He's going to get a good count today. He's going to get a fastball from Talent, and he's going to hit it out of left center field, probably oh, maybe in the second deck. Okay, all right. I'm looking forward to it. Matt Tui Asasopo's first home run of his career coming up, according to Mike Blowers. On a 3 1 count. On a 3 1 count. A breaking yeah. ball, fastball, it'll, it'll, it'll be a fastball. It'll be a fastball. He's a fastball ball. pitcher. 3 1 count. Second at bat. Three balls. I've never been so excited on the three-one count in my life. Three-one pitch on the way. Swung on oh. and belted. Oh, oh. Columbia! <laughs> missed the second deck. Fly, fly, fly I don't believe it. I see the light. I believe you, Mike. Unbelievable! It is two to nothing. Mariners. I mean, here comes the 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez now. And a fastball swung on with the deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back and it is. Get out the line, Brad, and the mustard this time, Grandma. It is a grand salami. And the Mariners lead it 10-6. I don't believe it. My, oh, my. Executive producer of Backwards K Pod. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fish and Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. 
I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap, only to touch my eyes half hour later, and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no base spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner, specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summertime shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com Carter was hit very hard by Andahar left elbow the first time he was up today. Another breaking ball, and this could be the ball game. Deep to left. Out of here. Gary Carter, a game-winning home run in the bottom of the 10th inning, and the Mets win on opening day 6-5. to five. Welcome to New York, Gary Carter. This game started with the World Series atmosphere, and I think it has more one right now. They love Carter here in New York already. Well, they figured that he would be right in the midst of things this season, and what a way to start your career with a new team. So Gary Carter wins it for the Mets.
break. I got an alert that the Cubs have just landed. Japanese Southpaw Shota Imanaga. Now, I'm going to get back to this week's topic, but I'll have more details on next week's Hot Stone Report. So, when we left off, we were digging into the life and career of one of the all-time great catchers, Gary Carter. He had an impressive run in Montreal, but the Expos have gone outside their budget to resign the kid, and the wheels of history have been set in motion as the Expos are on course to go up in flames and be reduced to ash before they move to the district and become the Nationals. In December 1984, Montreal trades him to the Mets for Hubie Brooks, Mike Fitzgerald, Herm Willingham, and Floyd Yeomans. Meanwhile, back in New York City, the kid bit in immediately with the fans when he drops game-winning Dom in the 10th inning of the 1985 opening day battle versus the Cards at Shea Stadium when he smacks a 1-0 curveball by Neil Allen over Lonnie Smith's head and left field fence. The ecstatic Mets fans roared their approval and gave the kid a curtain call. And Curtin, uh, Carter knew after that first day that the New York baseball fan was a much different animal than the ones in Montreal that he had performed for all those years. And he was acutely aware of how much bigger the stage was that he was now playing on. He would set a career high with 32 home runs that year while making invaluable but less visible contributions to the club. Both manager Dave Johnson and pitcher Ron Darling were grateful for his extensive knowledge of the league's batters. In fact, uh, Davey Johnson called Gary a one-man scouting system, which came in handy with the blossoming young staff of the Mets. Carter was grateful to be playing on natural grass after having uh, a dozen knee surgeries, both knees replaced as a result of the hard services of La Stadia Olympique. He did have some torn cartilage issues after the 85 season, but the kid threw on a brace and gutted it out for the season before getting arthroscopic surgery. The Mets fell short to the 1985 Cardinals, but they would run away with the title in 1986 with one of the most memorable baseball units in games history. And during the NLCS, Carter was mired in a 1-for-21 slump versus the awesome 1986 Astros pitching staff. But in the bottom of the 12th inning of that classic Game 5 of the series, the kid hit a game-winning RBI single up the middle past pitcher Charlie Kerrville. The Mets eventually overcome the Astros after another white-knuckle 16-inning battle of a game in Game 6. Gary Carter was finally going to the biggest stage you could hope for in baseball, and that's a World Series appearance. Their opponents were the Red Sox. Carter goes in for 29, batting 276 in the series with 9 RBI. He cracked two home runs in Game 4 at Fenway as the Mets brought the ball classic to a two games apiece stalemate. Yet, his biggest hit came three days later. In the unforgettable game six, that's all the ball eventually behind the bag gets by Buckner. Carter singles and attempts sparks arguably the most improbable two-out three-run rally to snatch a series win clincher from the opponent. 
A day later, the Mets would destroy the Red Sox, shattered and cursed Psyche to win the World Championship title. After winning the improbable World Series from behind, Gary's body begins to betray him. In 1986, he finishes with a .235 average, 20 home runs, 85 RBIs. Not bad for a tournament catcher, but far below Gary's standards. It took six quarter zone shots to make it through the campaign as he sustained injuries to his ankle, knee, shoulder, and back, as well as his throwing arm elbow. In 1988, Damian Johnson made Carter a co-captain of the team with Keith Hernandez. The drop-off continued, though, as Gary started 116 games behind the dish, but his batting fell to 246 average, 11 home runs, 46 RBIs. His caught stealing percentages also hit an all-time low at 19%. But he did go 6 for 27 and his final postseason shot as New York fell to the Dodgers in the NLCS. The decline continued in 1989 as the kid only played in 50 games. As his knee issues forced him to the surgeon's table once again, causing him to play in a career low 50 games. From early May through late July, he hit just 183 with two home runs, 15 RBI, leading the Mets to release him and Hernandez after the season. In January of 1990, he signs a free agent contract with the San Francisco Giants. There he would platoon with another vet, Terry Kennedy who had been with the Giants, urging their NL pennant winning uh, 1989 season. Nonetheless, he had to sign and play every day. He didn't want to just hang on if he wasn't producing. In 92 games, he batted a respectable 254 with nine home runs and 27 RBI. Even so, Carter again becomes a free agent. He doesn't sign with the team till mid-March 1991, this time with the Dodgers. And... I know what you're thinking. And the answer is no. He did not get a contract laid in the deferrals. Okay? In L.A., he backed up Mike Sosa. When Sosa suffered a broken hand, Gary played for two straight weeks, including both ends of a doubleheader versus the Braves. He did another credible job, batting 246 with six home runs, 26 RBI, and he threw out 30% of would-be base stealers. He didn't file for free agency after the 1991 season, and the Dodgers placed him on waivers as a result. He returned to Montreal in 1992 for his final year in the majors, and that was a dream he had swirling around the back of his mind. At age 38, his younger teammates still called him kid, and he actually got more playing time that year than any other catcher for the Expos, though he didn't really hit much. He still had the team rebound from a sixth-place finish the year before to a second in the NL East. He was able to cross the 2,000 games played threshold as a catcher, as well as surpassing 1,200 RBIs for his career, both marks that he was extremely proud of. His career ended in an upbeat note at La Stadio Olympique on September 27th when he drove in the game's only run as a pinch hitter. And he had already announced his retirement, and manager Felipe Lou told him to be ready because he was going to pick a spot in the game where Gary could say goodbye to the Montreal faithful. And thankfully, Felipe picked the right moment, and the kid comes through one last time with the game-winning hit. And I have that call on the Death of the Expo show if you want to hear that. After his retirement, 
a color commentator. He became a color commentator for the Florida Marlins and the Expos. He played a lot of golf on the Celebrity Players Tour. He had a desire to coach. He spent some time as a Mets roving instructor and became uh, the minor league catching coordinator for them in 2004. At the conclusion of the 2004 season, his name was bandied about as a future manager for the Mets. And he did receive some criticism for openly lobbying for the give while Art Howe held the position. He gets his first opportunity as a skipper in 2005, led the rookie ball Mets affiliate team to a 37-16 record. After another winning season the next year, he managed the high-A St. Lucie Mets of the Florida State League. He also leads the team to a winning record in 2006 and is named manager of the year in the league. The Mets offered him to skip a job for their double-A affiliate Binghamton for the 2007 season, but Gary declines the promotion, citing the rigors of the long Eastern League uh, bus rides. He was also disappointed that the Mets passed him up when the Mets managerial position became available in 2007. He then took all of 07 and 08 from baseball, but he would return in 2009 to manage the Orange County Flyers based in Fullerton, California, in the Golden Baseball League. Once again, he openly campaigned for the Mets manager's gig, this time with Willie Randolph falling, failing at the helm. And he stayed in Orange County, and once again, he won Manager of the Year Award. For the 2009 season, Kidd managed the Independence League uh, Long Island Ducks franchise, after which he became the head baseball coach at Palm Beach University in Florida. Carter then joined his daughter, Kimmy, who had been a star catcher in softball at Florida State and was now taking over as head softball coach at Palm Beach U in 2007. In May 2011, Carter begins to suffer from painful migraines and bouts of forgetfulness. He goes to the doctor and they diagnose him with uh, glioblastoma. Glioblastoma, I hope I pronounced that correctly. A highly aggressive and deadly form of brain cancer. His case was inoperable, but he fought like a champion with the course of radiation and chemotherapy. All the while displaying his usual positive outlook and competitive fire as usual. His children were there and his wife were 100% in his fight. And Kimmy begins to chronicle her father's experience through an extensive journal. You can now find the sad memoirs on CaringBridge.org. And if sobbing uncontrollably is your thing, I say go check that out. As sad as the chronicling was, it was an account of faith, hope, and determination. Even with an MRI scan in January 2012, identified several new spots of Carter's brain. Carter's assistant, assistants at Palm Beach Atlantic, they took over his coaching duties, but his surprise visit with the team on February 2nd was an uplifting sight for the players. When the team opened their season in Jupiter, Florida versus Lincoln University, and that was his last public appearance. Two weeks later, he lost the fight against cancer. And he died in hospice care at only 57 years old. He was survived by his loving wife, Sandy, 
their three children and three grandchildren. The Expos retired as number eight in 1993, and it retains that status today with the Washington Nationals. There have been various calls by fans to the Mets to do likewise. In May of 2013, the city of Montreal renamed a section of street adjacent to Jerry Park to Rue Gary Carter. The following month saw the inauguration of Gary Carter Stadium and Autistic Park. A crowd of old Expo Seamans greeted Gary's widowed wife and his daughter Christy, who emphasized how much Montreal meant to the Carter family. Before he died, he did co-author a couple of books, one entitled The Gamer, and which was published in 1993, and another one that came out before his death in 2008 entitled Still a Kid at Heart, which I'm currently reading right now. I highly recommend this book to you, Seamans. Yeah, if you can read, and if you're a Carter nerd like me. Oh, and that song you heard at the top of the show, Here's Looking at You, Kid, is written and performed by the Montreal rapper Anakin Slade, who is also on that Death of the Expos pod. I want to give that Expos freak a, a little shot out there. In 2003, his sixth year of eligibility... Gary Carter officially takes his rightful place amongst the game's immortals when he is inducted into the Hall of Fame. His Hall of Fame plaque shows him in an Expos hat, which for me is the right call there, by the way. But Carter had hoped he would he could have like a split hat between the Montreal Expos and the Mets. During the induction ceremony, Carter gets very emotional. You can find that on YouTube. His father, Jim, had died less than a month after being voted in. And he thanked his brother, older brother, Gordy, for being his hero. He played hard. And he completed like a true type A warrior between the lines. Off the field, he tried to live with a good Christian heart towards others. And going back to the mid-80s with the Mets, it's been well documented how hard that team played off the field with the trappings of the Big Apple nightlife and the sex and the booze and the broads and the drugs that came along with it. Garrett was 100% straight-laced. He would implore these guys to rein it in. Don't fall prey to the high life of New York City. One time, Lenny Dykstra came back to the clubhouse from drinking and doing God knows what else Nails was getting into at that time. He's out in the hallways, banging on Gary's door, uh, being that drunken asshole we've all encountered and can't stand. And Gary opens the door, picks up Dystra under his arms, and slams him against the wall. And he tells him in no uncertain terms that being a drunken idiot is no way to conduct yourself as a professional ball player. Thankfully, Lenny kept his mouth shut, or he would have been pummeled. And Daryl Strawberry, after his death, recalled how King Kid would always tell all of us to rein it in, boys. And the youngster, well, the team of youngsters who believed they were invincible, as all of us believe when we're young and in our prime, they would laugh at him as he read the Bible while they're about to hit the streets looking for trouble. It took Strawberry a few years and countless rehabs to realize that Gary was 100% right and we were all wrong. Strawberry would finish his thoughts saying, I wish I lived my life like Gary Carter. Now that was a true man. And folks, I think that's where I'm going to end this story about the great 
Gary the Kid Carter. There are so many things out there about the kid who still want to learn more about this magnificent ball player. Still a lot of story to this man. So I challenge you, Priest, to go out there and jump into that rabbit hole that is this man's life. And with this story now added to our collection, let's take a look at the iconic numbers he left behind on his resume. Gary Edmund Carter, nicknamed the Kid, born April 8, 1954, in Culver City, California, died February 16, 2012, at the age of 57, buried at Riverside Memorial Park in Tequesta, Florida, was drafted out of Sunny Hills High School in Fullerton, California, in the third round of the 1972 Amateur Baseball Draft. He became the 13,588 player to join the MLB fraternity when he makes his debut versus the New York Mets on September 16, 1974, going overboard. 19-year career with the Expos, Mets, Giants, and Dodgers. 70.1 career wins above replacement. 2,296 games, 9,019 uh, 9, plate appearances, 1,025 runs, 2,092 hits, 371 doubles, 31 triples, 32 home runs, 1,255 RBIs, 39 stolen bases, 42 times caught, 997 strikeouts, 848 walks, 3,497 total bases. A 262, 335, 439 slash line, 773 OPS, 115 OPS plus, 11 time All Star, 3 Gold Gloves, 2 All Star MVPs, 1981 and 1984, 5 Silver Slugger Awards, and catcher. And in 2003, he received 78% of the vote to earn inclusion in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Cooperstown, New York. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, same heads of all ages. This is the story of Gary Carter, the kid. And I'm so grateful to have this show, audience, and platform. Like I said, Kid was one of my favorites as a young seam head. And now I can take a story, fold it up nicely, and add it to our collection of ballplayers and their stories. I hope you enjoyed the show. I got to get you guys back to uh, Terrapin Station, where the families have been patiently awaiting your return. One small programming of uh, information of note. From now on, the show will come out on Wednesdays of each week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed telling you this tale. And I promise, folks, I'll try to be even better next week. And speaking of next week, as I look into my rearview mirror, I see that Gary Carter's story getting smaller and smaller. I now turn my attention to our never-say-die baseball hydra, and I chop. The head off that beast, only to see two more topics appear in its place. Oh man, this is going to be great. Next week, 
we're going to talk about the one and only Macho Man, Randy Papa. Ooh, yeah, dig it. Mania meets the madness. Yeah, baby. Most of the world knows him as the late Macho Man, Randy Savage. But before he became one of the greatest pro wrestlers ever, he had a dream to play Major League Baseball. And I'm going to bring you his baseball story. I can't wait to get after it. But you already know, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on a couch looking bored AF, by all means, take those little monkeys outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. I'll see you guys next week with that Randy Paco baseball story. Me and my boy Charlie Guns, we're throwing up our Gunner Hendersons, y'all. That's our number twos, you freaks. As in, peace.